Genesis 15, verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look towards the heavens and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted to him as righteousness. Verse 7, And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldees to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And he said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought them all there, and he cut them in half and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcass, Abram drove them away. Verse 12. And as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know that for certain your offsprings will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and they will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring my judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. As far as yourselves, you shall go from your fathers in peace, and you shall burn in the good, good, you shall be buried in the good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And when the sun had gone down, it was dark. Behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Catamarites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Raphim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. Because it has one of the greatest promises in all the Bible. One of the greatest declarations in all the Bible, 15.6. And Abram believed the Lord and it found him. It counted him as righteousness. In this is justification by faith. Oh, this is a sweet doctrine. It's a doctrine that we receive by faith, by nothing that we can do, but by everything that you have done for us. And so, Lord, I pray that everyone in here walks out of these doors this morning justified by faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You guys, go ahead and have a seat. <clears throat> What scares you? What, what are you afraid of in life? Uh, do you have any phobias? Uh, a phobia is an extreme or irrational fear of something. Um, I, I looked up some uh, top ten things that people feel and I, and I fear, and I got some pictures for you. So what we're going to do is some little fear, fear therapy, all right, on you today. All right, so uh, here's the first one. Some of you, oh yeah, 
Look at that guy, huh? Awesome. Fear of spiders. Who's afraid of spiders in here? Don't, don't be ashamed. One in, one in four men are ashamed, uh, are fearful of spiders. One in three women. In my family, Stephen is scared to death of spiders. Um, and so we're, we're one out of three, so we're ahead of that curve. And my lady, it's three of three. They all hate spiders in my family, right? Here's the crazy thing about spiders. Do you know how I many? There's 35,000 different kinds of spiders out there. And they say within one acre, there's one million spikers, uh, spiders in every one acre. One acre. Imagine that. We got two acres on this property, so there's two million spiders just kind of walking around right now. <laughs> All right. All right, here's the next one. Here's the next Oh. Oh, yeah. Oh, I even heard, even heard response there. People were freaking out. Fear of heights. Here's one that I was afraid of. Now, this was, was really when I was younger. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm scared to death of Jaws, right? Okay. And so, um, you know, when I, when I go out to San Diego or other places, um, and go in the, in the water, you know, as soon as someone touched my leg, you know, a little seaweed or something, I'd be freaking out. I'd jump, right? Who, who's with me? But here's the thing. I grew up in Tucson, Arizona, so we, we hung out at the pool all the time. And this was my fear in Tucson, Arizona. <laughs> who's with me? Every time you jumped in the pool, you thought, man, Jaws is like somewhere in the pool, right? Especially for me at night when he just had the lights on, it was real hazy. I mean, I'd jump off the diving board, do a little, little flip or something, and I'd be like, Phew, jump out of the water as soon as I can. Fear. Now there's other kinds of fears, public speaking, flying, fear of needles, snakes, fear of loneliness, fear of death, fear of am I really saved? Can I know that for sure? Well, the best way to overcome fear is through faith, is by faith. And that's what we see, and we're going to see here in Genesis 15. And this, this faith that we see in Genesis 15 is not a blind faith. It's, it's faith in them very particular. The, the promises of God, the covenant of God. It is this where we stand. It's this kind of faith in the promises of God that exercise our fear. So let's look at this together. First thing we see is faith in the promises or covenant of God brings comfort in verses 1 through 5. Verse 1, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield, your reward shall be great. As we know, we've been going, walking through the book of Genesis, and Genesis means beginnings, right? A lot of first, and we've seen the, the beginning of creation, the, the beginning of humanity with Adam and Eve. We've seen the beginning of work. We've seen the beginning of marriage. We've seen the beginning of, of sin and salvation. We've, we've seen the beginning of nations, and here we see another first or another beginning. This phrase, fear not or do not be afraid. This is the first time it appears in the Scripture. And the reason why that's so important is because this is the most repeated command in all the Bible. This is the most frequent command in all the Scripture. Do not be afraid or fear not. Now, why do you think that is? Why do you think that this command is the most repeated command in all the the Bible? It's because we are people that are afraid. We are fearful people. Things make us anxious. And we see this with Abram. The reason why the Lord appears to Abram and says, fear not, is because Abram was afraid. He was scared. And what was he scared of? Well, in this context, I think it was the fear of man. But some commentators think it's uh, Abram's afraid because he has this vision of the Lord. And we know in Scripture that anytime we see an, an angel come or, or the Lord himself, like in Revelation chapter 1, people freak out and they fall over as dead when John came in confrontation of Jesus in Revelation 1. 
Or when they see angels, uh, they're so terrified, like the shepherds in the field, the first things that they, they say is fear not. So that's, this could be, this could be why Abram's afraid. But I think it's again, he's afraid because he's afraid of man. He's afraid that what might just happen. It says after these things, we, Rich taught a great message last week on 13 and 14 about Abram just defeating these four kings. This, this, he, he went out to battle and he won. And he brings back his nephew Lot, and I think he's scared after this great victory that there's a bounty on his head. Retribution might come, so therefore he's scared. So the Lord comes, and he says, fear not. Now, this is not unique to Abram. In fact, we can kind of maybe chase this in the Scripture. When 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 someone has a great success or walks in faith and does a great thing, usually right after it, there's there's fear involved by the one who just conquered or just had success. You think of Elijah, right? Elijah in 1 Kings 18, where remember he went against the 450 prophets of Baal, right? Uh, to, to see whose God was real. And, and the 450 prophets of Baal built their altar. Abra, uh, Elijah built his altar. And they said, all right, you go, you guys go first, you prophets of Baal. Call down on your God to consume this altar, right? And then when you're done, I'll, I'll call down on my God. And, and the, the 450 prophets of Baal, they're praying, they're chanting, and nothing's happening. And then Elijah, he starts talking smack, right? He says, oh, maybe you guys need to, to, to pray a little louder. Maybe he's sleeping. Or it even says this, uh, maybe he's in the restroom. Maybe he's gone to the bathroom. I mean, this is coming out of uh, Elijah's lips. And nothing happens. And then it comes to Elijah. Elijah prays, calls down on the, the God of heaven to, to consume this and and even before he does that, they dump like three buckets of water on this altar to just soak it. He calls it down, fire comes down from heaven, and it just consumes the altar. So here's Elijah with his great victory. What happens next? He hears a woman is after him, Jezebel. And he runs off like a scared dog with his tail between his legs. And he actually asks the Lord to take his life. It's a natural response. We see that in Scripture. Um, and, and we can do the same thing, can't we? You and I can tend to do the same thing. We, we tend to have a great victory, a great success in life. And then all of a sudden, what happens? We're thinking like, oh man, that was awesome, but now something bad's going to happen, right? Who, who's with me? I, am I the only one in there? Anyone else? Yeah? One said this, my life has been failed, uh, filled with terrible misfortunes, most of which have never happened. This is how... We live. We, we, we tend to live in fear. In fact, I read an article this week that said 85% of what we worry about never happens. We spend 85% of our time worrying about things and the things that we worry about never happen. Well, again, the Lord knows that Abraham is afraid, this fear of man. So he comes to comfort him. And how does he comfort Abram? What does he say? He comforts him with what? A promise. A promise. He says, I got you, Abraham, or Abram. I'm your protection, and I'm going to protect you, but I'm going to make you prosper. What you just tasted in Genesis 14, that was just the beginning. It's only going to get better and better and better. Fear not. I got you. I am your shield, your protector. Verse 2. But Abram said, O Lord, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abraham said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household may be my heir. 
Now, this goes back to Genesis chapter 12 when, when God called Abram out of the Ur of Chaldees. And it's been about 10 years since then. And one of the biggest promises that, that the Lord gave Abram at that time is, I'm going to make you a great nation. Well, the problem was, was Abram um, was an older man, him and his wife Sarai, and she was barren. They had no kids. They had no progeny, no lineage. And so Abram just, he's, he's not um, rebelling or he's not acting in disbelief. He's, he's asking a question in faith. He's like, uh, Lord, you, you made me a promise a couple chapters ago um, that I'm going to be this nation, but I don't, I don't have any kids. We're still barren. Um, and, I'm, and we're way, by, way again, beyond our child-bearing years. So help me understand this promise. And I love the next scene, verse 4. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir, but look how specific it gets. Your very own son. In the past, it was offspring. You're going to be a great nation. Here, the Lord gives you more detail to the promise. You're, you're going to bear a son. He will be your heir. And he brought him outside and they said, look at the heavens and numbers of the stars, if you're able to number them. And then he said, so shall your offspring be. So Abram asked another question and the Lord answers his question again with another promise. And it's kind of reiterating the promise that he had in, tw- in, ver- in Genesis 12. Now, isn't that good? Doesn't that comfort your soul? The Lord hears Abram's heart behind the question. He does not rebuke him. Again, this is why I think um, he just reiterates the process. This is why I don't think he, he, he asks in rebellion, but he, he asks in faith because we've seen other times where people do, um, uh, the motive in their heart is rebellion, is lack of faith, is distrust. And you can remember like um, Zechariah, right before the angel Gabriel met him in the, in the Holy of Holies, and he said, you're going to bear a son. Your son's going to be the forerunner to Jesus, John the Baptist. And he was like, well, how, how am I going to know that? And then the angel said, well, this is how you're going to know. You're not going to speak until your baby's born, right? And we don't see that here. We see the Lord, again, come with another promise to comfort Abram's question. And again, this is the consistent way the Lord has comforted Abram. And this is a consistent way that the Lord comforts people throughout history, in particular, you and me. Again, when tensions arise, we saw last week in Genesis 13 with with Lot. Um, God takes Abram out and says, hey, your offspring will be like the dust and the sand of the earth. Don't, don't worry about what land you pick. I'm gonna, I'm still gonna bless you. And I love this because I said, this is the way that the Lord still operates today. This is the way that the Jesus operates. When we have fears, when we have questions, we have concerns. That, that Jesus comes and comforts us with a promise. We, we talked about this a couple weeks ago in Genesis 12. What do we do with the promises of God? What do you do with the promises of God? In Matthew chapter 6, you guys are familiar with this chapter, when Jesus, there's the worrying, there's anxiety. And Jesus says, hey man, don't worry. Don't be fearful. Don't have this anxiety work up in your heart. Go outside and look at nature. Go outside and look at creation. Go outside and, and see if there's birds flying around. Go outside and see if there's green grass and if there's trees are growing, they're blooming. Yes, there are. Okay, why? I care for them, but I care for you that much more. How much more am I going to protect you, provide for you, take care of you? That's my promise. I promise to take care of the animals and the creation, but I much more likely promise to take care of you. And you see, when we're fearful, when we have questions, there are times where we need and, and want the, the process to the promise. What I mean by that is, is, is we want to hear every single detail of how this promise is going to work out in our lives. 
There's times where we want to know, like, hey, we're walking through a valley. Lord, how are you going to take us out of this process? Give me from A to Z. Give me the whole point by point. Sometimes that happens. But I think the majority of time, we just need to hear the promise. We just want to hear the promise. We just want to hear the Lord reiterate the promise to us and not all the details on how he's going to figure it out or have it come to pass. When I broke my ankle in, in high school, it was baseball season, and um, it was the, the, the first game. We're playing at home. Uh, I'm leading off, so the next thing, so we're out in the field first, and we have this pick play at second, and the pitcher goes to pick it, and I'm at the bag. He, he makes a bad throw, so I go to turn to, to get the ball where well, my spikes didn't give, so I snap my ankle, okay? Now, this is brutal because I didn't even get a stinking at bat that season, even though I was the first one up because I got hurt in the bottom of the, of the top of the first, so that was brutal. So we go to the doctor, and the doctor, he didn't give me the whole process of what he's going to do to put my ankle back together. All I wanted to know is this happened in the spring, is that in the fall I was going to be okay to play football. And this is what he said. He said, Aaron, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to put some screws uh, in your ankle. I'm going to put some uh, pins in there. It's going to hold your ankle. And by the time fall comes around, by the time football season comes around, you're going to be good to go. And I was like, boom, I'm, I'm good. That's all I needed to hear. All I needed to hear was the promise that I would be okay to play in the fall. This is how you respond to trials as well. And questions is like, you just need the promise. And you're good. Some of you in here, I know, are walking through a, a, a tough time in life. I mean, you're in, a, you're in a deep, dark valley. Major things are happening to you. And you're a little fearful. And rightfully so. There's some, some anxiety. And, and this is what the Lord is saying to you as the same thing He said to Abram. Try this. You, 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 at night, you, you take a little trip. And you go to the mountains on a clear sky or you just get away from the city. And what you do is you just, you just look up at the stars. Just look up at the stars and be like, my daddy created that. And, and if he created the billions and billions of stars, then he can take care of the promise he gave me. In fact, you know, I love stats and I love creation. We know that there's billions of galaxies and the Milky Way, the one that we live in, is a fairly small one. Uh, the Milky Way is about 10,000 light years either wide and then 100,000 light years long. Uh -huh. A light year is 186, uh, 186 miles per second. That's how fast light travels, 186,000, 186,000 miles per second. So in other words, if you, you're traveling at the speed of light, you can circle the earth seven and a half times in a second. You fly past the moon in a second and a half, and to get to the sun, it takes you seven minutes. If you want to go from one end of our galaxy, the Milky Way, to the other, 100,000 light years is going to take you to get across. But here's the thing. In Isaiah chapter 40, it says this, the Lord measures the heavens by what? The span of His hand. So, when I make a promise, you look at creation. If I uphold all this by the span of my hand, how much more am I going to be able to fulfill the promise that I've given you? This is what gives us hope. This is the faith that overcomes fear. He's got you. Take a trip out. Look at the birds. Look at the, the creation that we live in. And be reminded of the promises 
that you're in a deep, dark valley trial right now, but you know his promises, hey, everything I work in your life is going to work together for your good. There's nothing that's going to be able to separate you from my love. I will provide for you. Some of you, just like Abraham, need to hear and, and dwell and walk in the promises of God. So that's the first thing we see. The first thing we see is faith in the promises brings comfort. The second thing we see is faith in the promise or covenant of God justifies. This is just one verse. Look at verse 6. And he believed the Lord and counted him as righteousness. The Lord said, here, here are the promises, Abraham. And what he do? He believed. He believed. And the Lord counted him as righteousness. Here's another first in the story of redemption. Here is the beginning of the great doctrine, the justification by faith. We just sang four great songs about it. This is a biggie. Because the, the, from here on out, this epic statement, the importance of this doctrine, the Bible will be unpacking this. It will be it's in seedling form here, but it's going to unpack it to the centrality of this foundational pillar to your salvation and mine. If you're a Christian in here this morning, this is the foundation of your salvation. This is the promise in which you and I cling to no matter how bad and how deep and how dark the valley. The Lord has us. It links our faith, our belief to justification. It's a biggie. Calvin says this is the hinge uh, about the justification by, uh, justification by faith. This is the hinge on which the Christian faith turns. Luther says it's the one, it's the chief article on which the church stands on. This is a massive statement, declaration by the Lord to Abram. Not only to, to Abram though, but to you and to me this morning. And again, if this was such an important verse like we said it is, you think, as you know, in, in, in Jewish and Israel time, the way they um, said something of importance or wanted us to remember it is they repeated it. Well, this theme gets repeated throughout the Scriptures, but four times this exact phrase is used. Three times by Paul in Romans chapter 4, verses 9 through 22, and in Galatians 3, 6, and in James 2, 23. This is a mega verse should be highlighted, underlined, memorized, burned into your heart, this, this verse. And he believed the Lord and it counted to him as righteousness. You know, one question we get, I get a lot of this, well, you know, are the people in the Old Testament saved the same way the people in the New Testament? Or is there a difference, right? They saved differently in the Old Testament. They got to follow the law. In the New Testament, we are saved by grace and faith. No, no, no. It's the same. Abram is saved by faith in the Lord. You and me are saved by faith in the Lord. In Hebrews chapter 11, the great hall of faith, we've been referring to that a number of times over the last number of weeks. It's the, the hall of faith. It's like, it's, it shows us like these people believe God. These people follow God. These people have faith. You want to know what it looks like to have faith? Read the hall of faith in chapter 11. And this is what we read. We see Abel was saved by faith. Enoch was saved by faith. Noah was saved by faith. Abram and Sarah were saved by faith. Why is this so important? Because the, the law hasn't been given yet. The law of Moses doesn't come till centuries, centuries later. And yet, these people were saved by faith. And then even when the law was given with Moses and the Mount Sinai, it still didn't save. 
The purpose of the law, Paul says in Galatians, it's a tutor. It, it shows us our need to be saved. It shows us that we, we cannot be perfect. We cannot follow these commands perfectly. We, we need a savior. It points us to our inabilities. And we see that Moses was saved by faith. David was saved by faith. Rachel was saved by faith. Rahab was saved by faith. Samuel. And we see this consistent now to the New Testament as well. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only forgotten son. That what? Whoever works shall be saved, right? No. Whoever believes will not perish but have eternal life. Paul answers this question. He says, was Abraham saved differently than, than you guys here in Rome? And, and the answer is no. In Romans 4.1, he says, what then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, then he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. So Abram is saved the same way we are saved. It's by faith in the Lord. Again, notice it doesn't say Abraham worked for God, and then God justified him. Nope, it says he believed, and it was counted to him as righteousness. So what we see here is we see this this theme, this thread from the beginning of the Bible in Genesis on page 10 of the Bible all the way through that we, you and I, are saved by faith and not by works. You see, in the Old Testament, they, they were looking forward to the promise. They were looking forward to the Messiah. They've been looking forward to, as we talked about in Genesis 3, this serpent crusher that would come and save them. In the New Testament and after, we believe that God has kept this promise and we look back and the one that has fulfilled it is Jesus Christ. He is the Lord. And so again, the difference, if there is any difference, is they look forward to the Messiah, we look backwards. But here's the key. The object is the same. The object of our faith is the same. It is the Lord Jesus. Justification is a judicial term. It's forensic. It's, uh, it has this idea of courtroom language where God, the king on the throne, declares the plaintiff, you and me, um, righteous, not guilty, justified. And the reason why we can get that declaration over our lives is because of what Jesus has done for us. Jesus fulfilled the law perfectly. Uh, we call this His active obedience. He was actively fulfilling the law for you and for me where we couldn't do it. We can't do it. So we needed a, a substitute, someone that would come in that would take our place to fulfill this. And Jesus lived that obedient life perfectly in which we couldn't. This is called his act of obedience. And then he, he, he made the payment for our sin, and this is called his passive obedience on the cross, where, where he was nailed to the cross, and he died on the cross for our sin. He, he took on the wrath and the judgment that was due us. This is called his passive obedience. And because of what Jesus has done for you and for me, we can be justified. We believe. There's, there, I mean, we could do a 10-week session on justification by faith and all of its points, but let me just highlight a couple and see, again, how incredibly important this doctrine is for you and for me. Here are a couple points to highlight for, for your study and mine on justification by faith. One, justification by faith is a, a one-time declaration. When you repent and believe in what the Lord has done for you, uh, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, God says, you are not guilty. It's a one-time deal. And then we do what's called sanctification. That is what's progressive. That's what we grow into Christ's godliness. But justification is a one-time declaration that you are not guilty. 
your judgments remain no more. You are righteous. Second, again, as I just point out, it's Jesus Christ's obedience. It's His righteousness. It's His perfect obedience that is imputed. That's a, a key word of justification. Imputed, it means credited to your account. Meaning that the righteousness we receive comes from outside of us. It's not in us. There's nothing good in us. It comes from outside of us and it is given to us. We can't earn it. There's, it's not in us. It's given outside. It's imputed. It's, it's Christ's righteousness imputed. This is what's called the great exchange. The great exchange is 2 Corinthians 5.21 that he who knew no sin became sin so that you and I can become the righteousness of God. The great exchange. And finally, it's received by faith in Jesus alone and not achieved by Jesus plus us working. These, this is justification by faith. And for the rest of the whole Bible, all that gets unpacked. And again, we live and we look back. And this is the, 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 the article of faith in which we do stand. Our salvation does stand. That we are justified. We are declared righteous because of faith and not because of works. You see, there's only two types of belief systems in the world. I know there's a bunch of philosophies. I know there's a bunch of different religions. But they all boil down to just two. The, the religion or the system of works and the religion and the system of faith. Works and faith. Or you could put it this way. It's the, the religion of do or the religion of done. And which one do you walk in? Which one, where is your deposit? You see, this is what's so great about Genesis 15, 6, that ever since Genesis 15, 6, thousands of years have passed. But this was the first declaration of that Abram was, was justified by faith. And from there on, it went from one to tens of people that were justified by faith. And from tens became hundreds who were justified by faith. And from hundreds it became thousands who were justified by faith. And by the time it gets to us, it's the thousands become millions upon millions upon millions of those who have been justified by faith. What that means is that we have an account. We have two ledgers. And on one side, our account is, 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 is all red. It's debt. It's sin. And, and, and we try to deposit, some try to deposit good works to, to clear that debt. And if that's the system that you run, if that's the system that, that rules your life, you will never take care of that debt. Never take care of that debt. But here's the beautiful thing. Is that when you believe, when your deposit into your account is belief in what Christ has done for you, that amount of debt that you could never repay gets canceled in an instant. Or should say gets paid off in an instant by Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. His righteousness comes to your account and that red ledger becomes white. It becomes pure as snow, as the Scripture says. Your sins are remembered no more. Zephaniah says your judgments are forgotten. They're taken care of. They are no more against you. Your debt has been canceled. You are justified. That's what your account statement says now. It says justified. How awesome is that? 
If you have a fear of, am I saved? How do I know that I'm saved? You know you're saved by you believe in the Lord. That is his promise. When you believe in him, you are justified. So what does your account say this morning? What is it? Is it, is it still filled with red and you're still trying to work it all out? Today is the day to say, I can't do it. Today's is to believe in Jesus. Repent and trust in him and what he has done. And be saved, be justified and hear that declaration over your life. Not guilty. So that's the second thing. Third says this. Faith in the promise of God leads to obedience. And this is really verses 7 through 21. And again, what we're unpacking here is, is this Abrahamic covenant. It kind of began in Genesis 12. It gets a little bit more detail in, in chapter 15. And then next week, we're going to look at it. it gets even more detail in Genesis 17. And really, this promises this, this, this point kind of leads into next week that faith in the promise of the covenant of God leads to obedience because ultimately the men um, under Abraham, if they want to show their faith, they have to get circumcised. And we know that when men do that, that takes obedience to do that. Okay, and we'll touch base on that next week. But we see here that this justifying faith produces obedience from Abram. In verse 8, Abram asks, how will I know? And again, don't read disbelief in here because Abraham was just justified by faith. So again, he's just asking a question. Hey, how, how's this going to happen? What's going to take place? So the Lord commands Abram to do something and Abram does it. He obeys and it takes him all day to do it. And so let me just kind of summarize the rest of the chapter here. First, we'll just look at what Abraham has been called to do in Genesis 15, 9 through 10. The Lord says, hey, bring me five animals. Uh, a cow, a goat, a ram, a turtle dove, and a pigeon. Cut them each in half, except for the birds, and put them on either side to form a path so the animal's blood kind of runs down and into this path and makes this kind of path of blood. So um, you're like, whoa, right? Um, I remember reading this to my wife for the first time. She's like, what? Just what, what? That's in the Bible? You know, it's just like, it's crazy. Uh, and the difference is, is that we live kind of in a written contractual age, right? So we buy a house, we buy uh, uh, insurances, we sign a business contract, we draft it up on a on a piece of paper, and we we sign it, uh, our name on it, and that's the way transactions and details are are made. That's why contracts are cut, and so that no one can come back and change the agreement. Well, in this culture, in this day, this even though it seems extreme, was was common. This is how they did business back here. This is how. They, 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 um, sign contracts. Um, in fact, um, one commentator has this very specific contract that comes from the Hittites, and we see in verse 19, they're named among the people of Abraham, so this happened to him, and this is the covenant. It says this, around basically the same time of Abraham, they took this covenant, tissues and tendons of animals, and they cut them all up, and they salted them, and they threw them on a hot pan in the fire. And here's what they said, and quote, this is the Hittite covenant. Just as this tissue and tendon split into fragments on the hearth, whoever breaks these oaths shows disrespect to the king and let these oaths seize him and let him split into fragments in the tissues and the tendons. So this is the common way. This is not out of the norm. To us, it feels like this is barbaric. Can you imagine Peter back in that day right now? Holy cow. They'd have a... Anyways. But this was normal. Not a big deal. So instead of signing the contract, they filleted some animals. And I was talking to my guys in my journey group uh, 
on Friday about this. And <laughs> Steve Watt makes got some good sense of humor. I was like, can you imagine, you know, how, what, what that took place? Like what, what kind of knife he had to use to do this? And Steve said, a sharp one. I'm like, yeah, good, Steve. Thanks for that sharp one. But anyway, so they cut the animals in half. They put one half on this side, one half on this side, kind of like in a little valley so this blood would flow down. And what would happen, and this is the point, that the two that were making the covenant together would walk in between the animals. And the blood and the guts and all that stuff would kind of get on their clothing, get on their garments, and they would, they would go through the details of the covenant. And they said, if anyone breaks this covenant, may what happened to these animals happen to us. Now, some of us in here are like, man, I wish we did contracts these days like this, right? Because we've been, we've been shystered a little bit. But this is the point. The point is the, the, the intensity of the, what they were committing to. And if they didn't keep up this end, their end of the covenant, this is what's happened. The word covenant in Hebrew means to cut. So literally we see in verse 18 that the Lord cut a covenant with Abram. But something is very interesting about the way this takes place in the way that it normally took place back then. We see this, that Abram in verses 12 through 16, after he gets done you know, cutting up the animals, fighting off the vultures, he, he's put to sleep and this deep darkness falls over him. And in this darkness that falls over him while he's sleeping, the Lord gives him a vision of his nation. And it's the, it's the vision of the exodus that, that the Lord is prophesying that will come to pass. And, and, and then... And then it flies to verse 17, and then it says, the, the Lord, symbolized by flaming pot and a torch, walks through the animals by Himself. Look at Genesis 15, 17. It said, when the sun had gone down, and it was dark, so again, Abram stayed up all day, cutting up the animals, fighting off the vultures, obeying the Lord and waiting on Him. Behold, a, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. Again, this fire in the Old Testament symbolized the, the presence of the Lord. So this is the Lord that is passing between these pieces. Verse 18. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, to your offsprings I give this land, to the river Egypt, the great river. And he, and he gives them the details of, of this land. And so this is what's crazy. Usually, both parties would walk down through the animals. But here... It's only the Lord walks down. And so the Lord is saying something very, very clear and very, very, very profound. He is taking responsibilities for both during this covenant. If God fails to keep his side of the bargain, he will pay with his blood. But if Abram fails to keep this side of the bargain, God will pay it for him, not Abram. This is unheard of back in those days. Usually when the, if there was between nations and the covenant was made and one was a, a greater king to the lesser king, the lesser king might walk through because it was, hey, the, the greater king doesn't need to walk through because he's going to do it. But the lesser king would walk through because he was probably going to be the one that was going to fail and that these bad things would happen to him. But here, the greater king walks through it by himself on behalf of Abram, on behalf of his people. This is amazing. The Lord takes full responsibility for both parties. This is the covenant. God says, I'll pay the penalty if I don't keep up my end of the, of the covenant, and I'll pay the price if you don't keep it either. And here the promise of this covenant 
Again, this detail is promised land. We know as we look forward, as we talk about Genesis chapter 12, it's more than just a piece of dirt because in Jesus, this commandment is, this covenant is fulfilled and he, he, he wants the world. It's the covenant to Abraham. Today, we, we live in a new covenant. Covenant that's described in Jeremiah and also Ezekiel that we live into. And what we see is we see some similarities of these two covenants. You see that just as Abram fell into a, a deep sleep, we, apart from Christ, are in a deep sleep of dreadful sin. Uh, Jesus' blood was shed on the cross for you and me. A spear was thrusted in his side and it flowed out. Now, did Jesus have to die because the Lord didn't keep up his end of the bargain? Absolutely not. He kept up his side. The reason why Jesus had to die and blood had to be shed was because you and I didn't keep up our end of the bargain. This is what we call the covenant of grace. Because all the responsibility is on the Lord and not on you and me. It's a covenant of grace. And what the Lord is saying to Abram back then, but what he's saying even more particular to you as we look back and we see the new covenant is, do you believe this this morning? Is this what you believe? That because of my sin, because of your sin, that separated us from the Lord. And the only way to get right from the Lord is not making deposits of work Oh, hey, I go to church. Oh, hey, I pray or I give or I'm a good person. No, the deposit that justifies you is, is faith, is believing in Jesus and what he has done for you. That's the covenant of grace. He takes on the responsibility for you and me so that we can be declared not guilty. That is the ultimate blessing. And we receive that blessing. Now, here's the other thing that you need to know that I need to know. This faith that you need to exercise and I need to exercise it's not perfect faith. We, we don't have to exercise perfect faith to get this. We just need to exercise the belief that the Lord is who He is, what He said He came to do, and He believed, and, and He did it. Because we're going to have valleys where there's going to even be times where we disbelieve. There's going to be times where we rebel or hearken to the thing, I believe, but help me in my unbelief. So even our faith isn't dependent. It's, it's what Christ is. It's in the object, which is a wonderful, wonderful thing. We're going to end. I asked Cole to sing this song because it kind of sums up this chapter. We're going to sing it as we close. And it says this, I've sent a line in there. He took my sins and my sorrows. He made them his very own. He bore the burden to Calvary. He suffered and bled for me. How marvelous, how wonderful will my song ever be. How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this chapter, Genesis chapter 15. Again, it is just scratching the surface of this great doctrine of justification by faith in which the rest of the Bible will unpack. And when we get to Christ, we see exactly what it means that you took full responsibility of this covenant and where we failed, Christ stepped in and fulfilled it. And He took on the payment that was due for us. He took on our sin and He gave us His righteousness. So our judgments are no more. And as you look upon us, you see a saint and not a sinner. And in that, we rejoice this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.